Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Arsblog 20 podcast series in which we celebrate 20 years of Arsblog by talking to a guest about a calendar year of the site's existence between 2002 and 2022. In this episode, we're talking about 2020 and with me to do that from the Evening Standard, it's Simon Collings. Hi, Simon. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. It's not that long ago, 2020, uh, but a lot has happened, obviously, from a footballing perspective, societal, uh, everything. Uh, a lot has happened since 2020 between then and now. But uh, let's start with your first pick from that year. What have what have you got to kick us off? Yeah, well, I'm going to have to go with the the opening game of the year that was was New Year's Day, and of course that first win that, that Mikel Arteta had as as Arsenal manager. Mm. Um, and I remember when he was when he was appointed. I think there was a lot of excitement about. Arsenal hiring this manager who was going to be the new Guardiola, the new style of football. And we saw a bit against Man United in that first win he got that that wasn't really, certainly initially, wasn't going to be his like modus operandi. Mm. He was going to be very different. And they beat Man United with quite an un-Arsenal-like performance. You know, they were pretty solid, clean sheet, um, you know, Socrates scoring. It was quite an untraditional way. But for me... It was it was a big performance in the sense that it sort of set the tone for that first two three month period where it was about solidity and hard work rather than about bringing this sort of Guardiola light to Arsenal that I think fans originally thought they were they were going to get. Yeah, I mean it was a big big job, wasn't it? Because um, look, if you accept that where we are now at, at, in twenty twenty two and at the time of recording, things seem to be. Uh, on the right track, there was obviously the post-Wenger era. There was the stuff that went down with Unai Emery and, and the club and the fan base seemed to be very divided. The Granite Xhaka thing against Crystal Palace had just happened. The squad was slightly all over the place. Do you think sometimes we underestimate quite how much work had to be done when he came in. And it's worth remembering as well that he came in as as head coach at that time. He wasn't the manager. He was the head coach. There was a, a football executive there with, with Raul Sanyehi, with Edu. Um, they were sort of calling the shots for quite a period of time as well. Mm, yeah, ma- massively. And I, and I think the appointment of Emery when they had that period where Wenger had left, there was an there was an option for what Arsenal were going to do left, and they clearly thought about Arteta because they held talks and they spoke to him about getting the job. And you know, a, a fair few people, certainly a lot of journalists, thought that Arteta was going to get it, but mm. they went with Emery, which kind of felt 
a bit like their transfer strategy for a while where they thought they were so close to that sort of top four that they could just make small minor tweaks, you know, short-term signing, short-term managerial appointments and get over the line. And in reality, I think when they hired Arteta, it was the moment where they thought, we've actually got to, you know, strip this back quite a lot and there's a lot of work to do and you don't hire a project manager without that being the case. And I remember Arteta's first press conference where he sort of vowed to, you know, shake the leaves of the trees and see what sort of falls and you need strong roots. And I think he knew as well that this was not something that was going to be fixed overnight. And Arsenal, when they appointed Arteta, I think that was a moment where the club realised, okay, we actually need a bit of a reset here. And it's taken well, the best part of two years or so, but mm. I think we're starting to see the foundations that Arteta was trying to build in those early days. Yeah, because for a while there was this, you know, mix. I think you're right. I remember the first press conference and he talked about all kinds of things, about how things needed to change, the culture, non-negotiables. He talked about the way we live, all of these kind of things. But at the same time, there was this still like a mix of post-Wenger executives with this manager or this head coach who obviously had ideas about what needed to be done uh, and how much he could do while still operating, let's say, when Sanye, he was the head of football, he was doing a lot of the, the transfer business, he was, he was responsible for a lot of that, and I suppose a lot of the decisions that were made were ultimately down to him as long as he was head of football, Arteta was was head coach, that, that obviously shifted, but you know that, that kind of mix of those two um, ideologies was probably not helpful. When we look back at it now, it should have been a much cleaner uh, implementation of, of whatever Arteta was thinking at that time. Yeah, and, and I, I think the fact that Arteta came in mid-season wasn't, wasn't massively beneficial. I think if you're going to do a sort of project manager and a, a change like that, there's a reason why clubs look at interim appointments and then do it in the summer just because I mean, I remember Arteta speaking in the sort of early days just about the amount of time he had on the training pitch. You know, he came in at the busiest point of the season mm. you know, around Christmas time and he, he didn't have time to really, really do what he wanted to do. And maybe that's why early on Arsenal were so pragmatic and so defensively minded and organised because as quick fixes go, they normally say the defence is the easiest thing to, to do if you want to make some early wins. Yeah. Right, what's next from this uh, August year? Yeah, I mean, the next game is... Um, is in February in the Olympiacos home game, mm. um, which I remember doing and just it being a sort of crazy, crazy game. Um, I mean, Arsenal, were, looking back at the results, they'd obviously lost to Chelsea in Arteta's second game. Then after that, they went on a really good run, didn't lose a game and, you know, had a decent, uh, a decent result out in Greece beating Olympiacos. It looked like they were basically through to the, the next round and absolutely stunned at the Emirates and I, I can still remember that Abamyang miss yeah. in what it was the sort of 120th minute and the stills that were going around on social media as they do afterwards of, you know how do I tell my kids that Abamyang missed this chance but it was it was amazing it was the first real setback of the Arteta reign and you could feel the atmosphere in the stadium just being completely sucked out of it and you know it was it was a really really bizarre night and one that I think um, looking back Arteta would have been absolutely gutted about yeah, I mean, when you look at the way the goals were scored, Olympiacos went ahead, Aubameyang scored in the 113th minute, they scored, uh, El Arabi scored in the 119th minute, and then there was this incredible chance for Aubameyang to respond 
immediately and he put the ball wide. It's, it's an interesting aspect of Aubameyang's time at Arsenal in that he scored a lot of goals uh, until recently, obviously, and what's happened of late is uh, secondary, I think. But along with all the goals that he scored while he was scoring them, there were some really big misses. Uh, whether that's to do with him, the volume of chances that he gets, like if that's inevitable, I'm not quite sure. But there are still a number of the the Tottenham penalty miss, I think, is one that people will think about um, quite strongly as well. But but that one was amazing for a player of his quality, for his experience, you know, on a big stage like that where, you know, he could have literally blown the roof off the stadium. Instead, like you say, all the energy was sucked out of it. Yeah, and I remember Bamiang afterwards when he was doing his beat interview, he was, he was almost close to tears. Um, and I mean, I know, I know it was appreciated, it's a knockout game, but he looked absolutely crestfallen. And, and there was a, a narrative that came around that time about him not showing up in in the biggest games against the biggest teams. And we'll obviously get on to later in the year when he certainly did do that. But mm. I, I think there was justifiably question marks about when you know, Arsenal needed him most, as much as goal record was great. Did Aubameyang really deliver? And that was one of those nights where, where he didn't. Yeah, yeah. It's still one of those that uh, you find it hard to believe that, that that had happened. And you wonder, I mean, it's not quite a sliding doors moment, but you wonder how the rest of that season might have gone. But of course, there was a, a very um, serious interruption to that. Mm. Um, I remember, weren't there stories afterwards about how the Olympiakos president had tested yes. positive for for COVID-19 and you worried and you wondered mm. and then yeah you know. I remember I remember in the wake of that there was I mean it, those stories had come out about the Olympiacos uh, I think it was the owner, owner or president who also owned Nottingham Forest and he'd mm. been in the mix zone with all of us and he'd been sort of obviously lapping up all the media attention that he was rightfully getting um, <laughs> and then it sort of came out he tested positive so Suddenly, everyone was, you know, just asking for themselves. We didn't know anything about the virus at that point. Like, do I need to, you know, am I okay? What's going on? And then <laughs> it was transpired that, you know, he tested positive after that. So it was all a really bizarre sort of moment in time. And yeah, it was a sliding doors moment. But the way that sort of European competition um, was played out in this sort of mini tournament, I remember the way Wolves dropped off that season having to play in it. Mm. I do wonder if it was perhaps a blessing in disguise that Arsenal weren't in it. But in, in a normal season, yeah, I think they would have been devastated to go out there yeah so what's next i mean the next stage is the football's big shutdown as mm. uh, as we sort of alluded to there and the way it all unraveled so quickly and i remember just from a working point of view that i think it was on it was on the thursday night um I remember it because i was out for an anniversary anniversary dinner with my, my now fiance and uh phone was going rather wild with sort of messages coming in around the news that Arteta tested um, tested positive for the virus. And before then, it had been sort of bubbling away about what was going to happen. I remember being at the West Ham game the week before mm. and speaking to to someone there, a fellow journalist who'd sort of heard rumblings that this this, this might be the last game. And, yeah, I think there's something pretty big's coming here. And when Arteta tested positive the next morning, the speed with which things developed for us being a morning newspaper was... By the time we'd gone to print at sort of 11 o'clock, football had basically shut down. And I think the last press conference I did for about three months was Nigel Pearson laying into into Boris Johnson, which probably hasn't changed much now. But that was um, <laughs> that was it. And football was football was shut down. And Arteta played a huge role in that. 
Yeah. What was that like for you from a work perspective? Obviously, as a sports journalist, when there's no live sport. Mm. I mean, I know I remember what it was like for me, um, you know, somebody who tries to write something every single day on the blog when there's no football. Mm. Um, and the only story in the news is this virus, which, you know, at that point we were very much in the dark over and how it was going to affect people and, and how badly people were going to be affected, how long they would be affected, how long the thing would go on. We were just absolutely clueless. You know, it was quite challenging to 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 produce work. Um, maybe there isn't quite the same pressure if you don't have a game to go to or a press mm. conference to attend or a, a match to report on. You know, it might be a little bit different, but when your routine is shut down, what, what was that like? I mean... You had lockdown there. We had lockdown here in, in Ireland. Everyone had their own lockdown experiences. But, you know, uh, someone who's out and about and doing things and going places and meeting people and talking to people all the time, what what do you remember about that from a personal perspective? Yeah, it was it was really strange. And, I mean, I remember for a sort of few – after it happened, you know, the, the Monday after we had a sort of a big meeting and it was basically sort of what ideas has anyone got? Nothing's off the table, you know, features – everything to try and you know fill this void mm. um we ended up as a company you know myself and you know vast majority of the staff maybe 80 percent of our sort of sports team was, was furloughed so i was sort of not working for two months um which was was quite nice but also quite a strange experience where you know life just sort of stopped for, the, for that period of time and and in a, in, a, in a way it did make you appreciate you know football and, and also the job that you know i get to do to go and cover games and when it came back we were you know sort of briefed from football organizers and governing bodies it's going to be you know the, the schedule is going to be relentless to get these games in but it was what i think everyone everyone wanted and needed any football fan when you'd had sort of two months of desperate to watch anything i remember when the bundesliga came back and suddenly yeah. everyone was watching that yeah. and then when it came back and every single game was on tv there was a game every day I think it did make people appreciate what we've had. And, and, I, and I certainly think that's the reason why the atmosphere, particularly the Emirates, has been so good this season. Because it's been taken away, I think there's just been fans realising what they have and how much they appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a book to be written on, you know, the way that it impacted sport and impacted football. And we had all kinds of things going on, didn't we, with with Arsenal, you know, beyond Arsenal, but keeping it from an Arsenal perspective, there was the um, the layoffs, there was the pay cut for the players, uh, which was put in place very, very quickly by by the owners. Um, you know, the politicians who are talking about how footballers need to do more just because they're very highly paid uh, sports people, they should do more. And to be fair, the footballers did. I think they came together um, in a really significant way to raise money for NHS charities and things like that. So, you know, this focus on on what footballers should do, um, I suppose, you know, where we are now and the reaction to it from governments and what have you, I guess it's welcome for them or it was probably a good thing for them to to put some focus on footballers and distract from what they were or weren't doing at that time. But you know, they were really front and centre in all this. And it's worth remembering, too, that when they came back, the protocols they had to go through, games were being played behind closed doors. You know, the idea of 
footballers, you know, having to go out there and just entertain us all again because we needed it, you know, as as people, as football fans. You know, there wasn't the same awareness um, back then as there is now as to, you know, if there would be long-term effects for players. Um, talk of long COVID wasn't relevant at that time because we had no idea about it. So I, I think sometimes we forget, like, what the footballers and those working in football did to come back at that time. You know, it felt like an age, but it was, what, two and a half months, three months, and football was back. So, yeah, I, I think they that part of it is maybe a bit overlooked. Yeah, def- definitely. And I, I remember at the time, certainly, I think Troy Deeney was one of the most vocal players speaking about fears they had about going back into training. And there mm. were others involved. I think Kante at Chelsea was in a similar situation simply because we didn't know the full extent of what this virus could do. And there was other, you know, loads of people in other jobs and other industries, not even close to going back to work, but it was put on footballers that, you know, this needs to get started again. Obviously there was people pointing to the fact financially is a reason to get playing, but I, I agree a large part of it was the escapism and football provided that for people. And, I think the way the Premier League, and I know they obviously get criticism now around the postponements and everything that's going on with COVID, but the way they organised getting those games on and keeping such tight bubbles Mm. and the scheduling, working with the broadcasters deserves a lot of credit because at a time when people needed something to lift their spirits, football was able able to deliver. And um, yeah, it's it's something that gets overlooked. I think you're, you're spot on there. So um, I guess we're moving on, are we, to maybe what happens when football does come back and um, what Arsenal do after that? Yeah, I mean, the first game back was um, a kind of case of Arsenal not being back. I remember that Manchester City game and and everything that around it was, was pretty painful. You know, David Luiz getting, yeah. getting sent off. Arsenal getting pumped by Manchester City and, you know, you wait three, four months to see your team play and you see that and it also transpired there was no Meza Ozil in the, in the squad um, and, and again, question marks raised over that and it was perhaps the first time we saw, I think, it, that Man City game and the Brighton game, the first two games, obviously there was the Ozil involvement which mm. we didn't we didn't see him again and then Gwendouzi in, in the wake of the Brighton game as well. Yeah, where we started to see some cracks in in what Arteta was trying to do, and started to see those leaves shaking that he suggested would happen, and um, it was a difficult period that, and I think COVID certainly made it even harder for for Arteta. Yeah, I mean, Leno got injured, if you remember, yeah. and uh, I remember very distinctly at the time when there were fears about how lengthy that Leno injury might be. That well, Arsenal are going to have to go and buy. The goalkeeper, they're going to have to go out and get somebody because if Leno's out for nine months, you know, I, there really wasn't like, there weren't, as far as I can remember, there weren't really very many people saying, you know what, Emmy Martinez, he's the guy. Don't worry about it. It'll all be okay with Emmy in goal. But I mean, um, I know he's elsewhere right now, but I also don't think we should overlook the fact that when he came in, he was um, he was very, very significant in the success uh, that we went on to have between then and the end of that season. Yeah, I remember. I think fans were fans were sort of frantically googling goalkeepers available on a free and sort of, you know, yeah. Rob, Gre- Rob Green's around, uh, Caballero <laughs> must be somewhere. And there was this panic on Twitter, being like, "Oh, we'll have to get him. We'll have to get him." Yeah. And then 
And Martinez, to be fair, he I mean he's like this now. Everyone knows the way he is, but he is incredibly confident in his own abilities. And when he was given the chance to play, um, he absolutely seized it. And and it was a remarkable run of games that he had, going from someone who you probably, if you'd have said before lockdown, Arsenal would be lucky to get a few million pounds for mm. um, when the when the transfer window opened that summer. Suddenly, he's a twenty million pound goalkeeper and. We still, fans still debate it now whether Arsenal should have kept him. I don't remember at the time there being too many people moaning at getting £20 million for your backup goalkeeper. Um, oh, I, I, yeah. I remember people moaning about that, all right. It was more like, <laughs> well, well, why didn't we sell Leno? It was like, well, he's, there's no offers for Leno. Yeah, no one wants Leno. Yeah, I mean, if you'd yeah. said, like, before before Leno got injured, if you'd said, look, in three months' time, you're going to be able to sell Emmy Martinez for £20 million, mm. people would have said, you're crazy. But, mm. I mean, that's a testament to the performances that he put in, and, and fair play to him. He'd been at Arsenal for, whatever, eight, nine years, hadn't really shown anything close to what he showed in that period where I think it's the, the the classic example of a door opening for a player and him absolutely grabbing that chance with both hands, maybe knowing it's not quite a last chance thing for him, but like he'd been on loan in Spain, he'd been on loan at various clubs around England and hadn't really um, displayed anything that made anyone think this guy's ready to be a number one goalkeeper for a Premier League club or for Argentina. And you know, I know people get a bit fed up with him talking about Arsenal uh, after the fact, but you know, I think it's I think it's nice that he's gone on and had that opportunity. And you know, I don't think, given the goalkeeping situation at the club right now, people are too too worried about it at this point. But yeah, exactly, and and it it brings us on nicely to the to the FA Cup yeah. semi final and final run because I remember we got the opportunity to interview Martinez, but before that. Um, and he's, he's a brilliant talker as much as um, I know fans sometimes get annoyed by the fact he talks too much now he's now he's left the club. Yeah. But when you heard his story from where he'd come from in Argentina and the challenges he'd gone through, the years he'd waited to get to play for Arsenal mm. and he was finally going to play in a cup final, it was desperately sad there was no fans there, desperately sad his family were just sat in South America watching him on the telly, wishing him to win it. And it was the weirdest cup final I think I'll ever go to, to experience a game like that, which felt huge for Arteta, huge for the club. And it was an empty Wembley. Yeah. Um, really, really odd day, but one that felt significant for the for the club. Well, it was huge, wasn't it? I mean, winning the cup in his first season or first half season as a manager, I mean, I think you're right. You and whatever um, number of journalists were there were really lucky. You know, mm. if you're if you're an Arsenal supporter and you're actually there to witness the club lift an FA Cup, it's a great thing on its own. But you know, when you're one of the only ones who could do it, but it did make it a bit surreal, didn't it? That that whole thing uh, of no fans at Wembley, and when you think about how how much of an event the FA Cup final is in the calendar, um, you know, for fans to miss out on that. Um, Look, I think we all understand the reasons why, but missing out on an occasion like that, as much as you can celebrate online or with your friends or whatever it might be, it's it's not the same as as being there in a in a packed Wembley Stadium. Um, I mean, do you think it had any impact on Arsenal in the sense that did it take any pressure off a team? I think it gave I think it gave Arteta more power and more 
credibility earlier on in his Arsenal reign than he might have even expected he was going to get. You know, mm. I think it was significant that his job title changed after that from from head coach to manager. Um, and, and I can remember, you know, perhaps in hindsight, it was Arsenal gave him the keys too early or gave him too much sort of power. But I, I can remember coming away from that that Wembley game, and you were you were sort of swept up in everything Arteta was doing. It was impossible for those you know running the club to not think this is the guy let's you know let's give him give him the keys and let him drive us because he knows what he's doing and those photos of him in the change room holding the trophy everyone crowded around him mm. Bamiang posting on social media calling him my manager in in love with him ready to sign a new contract he, he could do no wrong at that point and I, I do wonder whether it obviously was big for the club and gave him more you know power and credibility with them i do think the fact that there were no fans there almost detracted from the influence it had on supporters the fact that they weren't there from it and i think i think it really do think it would have yeah. been different in front of a full wembley and fans experiencing it and then there just being a bit of disconnect between arteta and the fans which i think he's got now yeah but i do think he suffered from that period where his team were just playing to no one well, that's true i mean it's one of the things he's he's said consistently and said consistently through lockdown when fans weren't in stadiums that you know he desperately wanted fans to be back and and you can't really gauge the impact that it has on a team and how it performs but we can see from this season that connection between the fans and the club and the team is is much more positive and you know as an arsenal fan it's it's nice to see that um i mean we talked about obamiang earlier on but it's worth mentioning the the pivotal role that he played in the the final and the semi-final two goals in both those games um a team that really needed someone to produce on an individual basis because it wasn't quite ready to produce as a collective i don't think it needed those moments of inspiration i know there were a couple of really good team goals uh, and the way we moved the ball out from the back etc etc but you still needed somebody to be that add that bit of star quality and he did that in those games yeah and, and that, that was the example of Bamiang being the captain that arsenal and arteta at the time saw him as where he's, he's not someone who is going to be shouting and screaming and barking out orders but he is someone who is talismanic in Leeds by example and those games were perfect you know ex examples and points to that I think particularly the way in the final he delivered was crucial not only for for the club but also for his future mm. um, you know a big part of him wanting to stay was the idea of winning trophies and being a legend at the club and I know it hasn't panned out that way but I don't think you should, we should overlook the value he saw in being the one who lifted up that trophy, being the one who scored those goals. And again, at the time, there wasn't anyone saying, "No, no, don't give him a big, you know, new yeah. contract. Let's let's think about moving him on." So that was another sliding doors moment, and one that at the moment doesn't look like it's panned out that well. But that summer was certainly probably one of the high points, I think, for Bamiang in his sure. in his Arsenal career. Sure, look, it's easy to look back with hindsight, but at that time, you know, when he dragged the team, not, not dragged the team, but scored two goals against Chelsea uh, in the final, two goals against Man City in the semi-final. He's got 12 months left on his deal. Arsenal are thinking, what do we do here? We don't know what the impact of this pandemic is going to be going forward. There was no, um, there was no uh, real idea of what it was going to do to transfers, transfer values, whether you'd be able to get another player in. Like, maybe 
the warning signs were there with a couple of other deals that Arsenal had done, giving big contracts to players heading towards the final stages of their career. But I think when you look back on it and the circumstances in which it happened, you can really understand it. Yeah, and I, also, I think a big point as well is tactically the way that team was set up under Arteta mm. with with the back three and the back four. It was basically all built around Aubameyang uh, and getting the ball down the left flank. You, you know, you talked about the goals they scored in the semi-finals and the final. Mm. They were the sort of goal that they scored. I remember they did it on the opening day at Fulham as well, where they shift the ball out left, Aubameyang cuts in and scores. The whole team was built around getting the best out of him. So at that stage in the project, Arteta was pretty clear that he needed to keep mm. Aubameyang because the team was going to be built around him. And I think it's just happened probably quicker than even even Arteta thought that the, the tactically the team doesn't revolve around Aubameyang at all and he, he maybe doesn't even fit in this team. You know, yeah. he's a bit of a square peg in a round hole. But at the time, I think it's something they had to do and it reminded me a bit of the Ozil situation where it's never good to act like this, but almost from a PR perspective to, you know, to have won that FA Cup with Aubameyang scoring both goals in the final, holding up the trophy at Wembley and then, you know, you get rid of him. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that would have would have washed with many people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the optics of that would have been crazy, particularly mm. as like I'm not sure what we could have done in the transfer market. I mean, we did spend some money in in the market um, in the off season, which obviously was um, skewed time wise because of the extended uh, end to to that particular season. Uh, Thomas Partey, Gabriel came in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But like, could they then have stretched to another striker or would they just have been uh, wise to let that 12 months run out and see where they were at that point, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those where it's, it's, it looks bad with, with, with hindsight, but mm. I think at the time it was, it was the right decision. And um, the way it's ended is, is going to be a bit sad, I think, but um, I, I don't think looking back, Arsenal would have done anything different because it, it just felt like the right decision at the time. What else have we got? Just to close us well, off, I've we've got a couple of quick things. Yeah. A few of these games in, in what I call the the winter of discontent. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a lot of games uh, that were really bad <laughs> at the start of that season, and I remember you know this was a time obviously with no fans, and there was just a few journalists of us going, and it seemed to be every Sunday Arsenal would be playing at seven o'clock, which is, just felt like a horrible kickoff time mm. anyway. Right at the end of the weekend, when you've seen all the other teams play. Um, go in there, empty stadium, no fans, mm. getting turned over by teams. But some of the games that stuck out, that, that Aston Villa game, oh. where Watkins, Jack Grealish were just terrorising Arsenal. I think I remember Bellerin getting getting bashed to the floor and thinking how different he looked like the player he was when he first came on the scene. And then yeah. also, you know, the Burnley game where everything that could go wrong did go wrong, you know, an own goal from Aubameyang, which summed up his sort of fall from grace. Xhaka, red card, another classic of the genre. Um, <laughs> and it was just a really, really miserable period. And each week, I remember these stats were coming out and it was like the worst start since 86, the worst start since yeah. 70. The worst, And it was just going on and on and on. And it was a really, really bleak time to be covering the club. It really was. Because when you look back at it now, and there was a win over Sheffield United, lost 1-0 to Man City, lost 1-0 to Leicester, beat Man United 1-0 in one of those games mm. where people went, wow, okay, 
Now I see what party can bring to this midfield. If we can play like this, you know, we can do we can do pretty well. Uh, but then lost to Villa, drew at Leeds, lost to Wolves, lost to Spurs, lost to Burnley, drew at Southampton, lost to Everton, and you're thinking, whoa, where the fuck is this going and how is this going quite as wrong as it is, you know? Mm. And I suspect even now even if he has always felt a measure of support and um, backing from the club and the board and everything else, I'm pretty sure there's a part of Mikel Arteta's mind that must have thought, Ooh, I could be on thin ice here. Yeah, they, they were in, in free fall at that point. I, 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 just every week, they didn't really seem like they were going to turn a corner. I, I think they were quite lucky they had the Europa League at that point, actually. Yeah. Because they did sort of break up those games and it was normally academy kids, it was young players, and it would lift the mood a little bit when mm. you know someone like Joe Willock has a good game or another youngster has a good game, just to break up the monotony of those seemingly never-ending defeats. But the, the fact he came through that run, for me, always felt like if he's navigated through this part of the storm and got to the other side, it's going to have to be a pretty big storm that you know gets (laughs) him out of the club because they stuck by him when it was really really brutal um and you know we talked about the fact he hasn't got fans and and the downside of that i i think that maybe at that point was probably a good time to not have supporters in the stadium for some of those games because they were really bad and and i remember i think they came to the burnley game uh i think there's about 2000 in there and in fairness to the 2000 who went uh Mm. They saw an awful game, terrible performance, but you know they applauded the team on and off the pitch. Uh, Willian, who obviously we know had a terrible season, was getting applauded as he went to warm up. So it's probably a time it was just as well the, the fans went in there, but just a really, really bleak time. And, and Arteta's our, our probably worst sort of three, four months in the job. For sure, for sure. Well, can we finish 2020 on a high note? There might be one yes, more thing. Yes, we've got to finish on a high note. And... Um, I don't know if it's been dubbed, renamed Emil Smith Roday or you know, <laughs> what is the the performance that it was. Um, coming fresh on the heels of uh, a very miserable Carabao Cup game to Manchester City. Um, Alex Runison not covering himself in glory. And when, when no. Chelsea came, came to town, I remember... There was a bit of talk about pressure on Lampard. Obviously, he did lose his job quite, quite swiftly, but there was pressure on Arteta as well, you know, sort of people saying he loses this and Smith Rowe was thrown in and hasn't really looked back since. It was just an absolute breath of fresh air from everything that we'd seen in those, in those miserable three months to see a young kid like that with such exuberance, such ability doing it against Chelsea, I think just really lifted the mood of, of everyone. Yeah. I mean, it was an amazing impact and he continued to have an amazing impact for the rest of that season. And was it desperate times calling for desperate measures or, you know, a a fit again player being available to a manager and he knew he needed to change something. But when we talked about Emmy Martinez taking his chance and when he got in, I mean, Smith Rowe came in, no fear, playing against Chelsea, Arsenal won 3-1. I think Bakayo Saka scored that great goal with his right foot that he definitely, definitely meant. <laughs> you know, so there was a sign there maybe that, you know, if we were going to pull ourselves out of this particular mess, um, Saka, Smithrow, who have gone on to um, be lauded in song by the Arsenal fans, were going to be a big part of that. Yeah, and I do think Smithrow was 
a decision born out of necessity, mm. not necessarily choice. Um, Arteta had rigorously stuck by the likes of Willian, um, Pepe to an extent, and had got to the point where he had to he had to change something, had to do something different. Mm. And Smith Rowe was there as you know an, opp- an opportunity, an option to turn to, and. I, I don't know if Smithrow himself even thought it would go as well as it has done because, you know, the, the following 12 months have been absolutely brilliant. But the way he the way he played that night, the, the main thing for me was just, he was such like a glue player, I call him. He just seemed to slot in and make everyone else better around. It wasn't necessarily things he did individually. Mm. He just seemed to make other players play better. And, you know, at a time where a lot of these players had felt like they were playing for themselves and individually... To have someone in the in the team who was a true team player mm. made such a difference, and um, yeah, it gave some hope at the end of what was a really miserable three four months of, of, of football. Sure was nice to finish on a high note after like when you were just <laughs> talking about this now, and I, I think we've only really scratched the surface of twenty twenty in terms of what a crazy up and down, bizarre, surreal year it was, not just for Arsenal, but for everybody. But nice to finish yeah. on a high note. So look, Simon, thank you very much indeed. And we'll uh, we'll chat to you soon. Thanks for having me on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Simon is on Twitter at Simon Collings, at Simon Collings, and he writes about Arsenal for the Evening Standard. Thank you to him for going back over 2020 with us. We've got one more of these episodes left, 2021, a year that's still fresh in the memory, but perhaps there are one or two things that might have just slipped your mind. You never know. So join us for that one. Until then, take it easy, folks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 